Romans 7. I, uh, I almost feel guilty about breezing through Romans 6 and 7 like this, but, uh, but I wanted to get to this because this really hits the theme of our conference, you know. Why is the struggle with sin so hard? Why, why can I not do the things I wish I could do? And it's, it's a comfort to me, actually, to realize that the Apostle Paul faced that same struggle. So we're going to be looking at verses 14 through 25 here. This is that famous passage where Paul uh, describes his struggle with sin. And I'm going to read the whole passage in a moment, but I want to begin by calling your attention to two key verses in the text, verses 18 and 19. This sums up what Paul is saying in the second half of Romans 7. I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out, for I do not the good that I want, but the evil I I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, obviously, everybody who grapples with this passage has to, has to deal with a vital and difficult question, and it's this. When the Apostle Paul wrote Romans 7, verses 14 through 25, is he describing his experience as a Christian, or was he looking back to his life before conversion and describing the conflict he felt as an unbeliever who was in bondage to sin but living under the law? Is this really Paul speaking as a Christian, or is he looking back on his old life and describing what the struggle of, with sin was like for a Pharisee like Saul of Tarsus? And that's a vital question, and it has major ramifications for how we understand the doctrine of sanctification. If you imagine that sanctification is an easy one-time process that can be accomplished instantly, or if you think any kind of sinless perfection is attainable in this life, or if you think of sanctification or even the new birth as a crisis that will automatically vault you into a higher spiritual plane where you no longer have to deal with temptation, then you're going to have a hard time explaining how the Apostle Paul could have been describing his own spiritual experience as a Christian in this passage. And notice, the struggle Paul describes here is a fierce battle with sin in which he is frequently frustrated and often fails. He even calls himself a wretched man in verse 24. And let's be honest, this is a difficult passage. How can this possibly be a description of the mature Christian leader's experience, an apostle like Paul even? And even more to the point, if this is what Paul experienced as a seasoned and godly apostle, what hope is there for the rest of us? Some would say, if this is a description of Paul's Christian life, it's hard to reconcile with Romans 6, because after all, Paul has just described the Christian life as a life of glorious freedom from the bondage of sin. In fact, let me review that with you just by way of introduction. Starting in verse 5 of Romans 6, Paul says, For if we've been united with Christ in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know, now listen to what he says, that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, for the one who has died has been set free from sin. And then in verse 14, sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under the law but under grace. That is triumphal language. It describes the Christian life as a life of liberation from the bondage and the, and the curse of sin and a life of victory over the power of evil. So how do you reconcile that with Romans 7, just one scant chapter later, where Paul turns the spotlight on himself and says, verses 18 and 19, I know that there nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, the history of how this passage has been understood is worth mentioning. During the Reformation, all, all of the great Protestant reformers were united in saying this passage in Romans 7 describes the Apostle Paul's Christian experience. 
They had no problem interpreting this passage as a description of the daily battle against sin every Christian must wage. Practically the only commentators who balked at that interpretation were Roman Catholics because it didn't fit well, obviously, with their notion of the infallibility of popes and apostles and saints. And it was not until many years after the Reformation, in the wake of perfectionist teachings from men like John Wesley and later by Charles Finney, that some Protestant commentators began to look at Romans 7 in a different way and try to interpret it as Paul's description of his pre-Christian state of mind. And that began really as a novel interpretation, but it has gained popularity over the years along with the rise of deeper life theology and other perfectionist views on sanctification. And recently, it seems, more and more commentators have taken the stance that Romans 7, verses 24, or verses 14 through 25, could not possibly be descriptive of Paul's experience after conversion. In fact, I would guess that the majority of commentaries published in the 20th century rejected the view that Romans 7 describes Paul's experience as a Christian. So the tide has shifted, and now it's pretty common for commentators to claim that Romans 7 is Paul's description as uh, Paul's, Romans 7 is Paul's description of the struggle he waged against sin before he found Christ. And I'll be honest with you, I think it's a bad trend. And it is both the fruit of bad doctrine and the cause of a lot of unnecessary frustration among Christians who are struggling to be holy and authentic. If, if you understood and embraced the fact that Paul is describing every Christian's struggle with sin, a lot of our frustration could be dealt with by this passage. Because Paul shares our frustration. I'm encouraged by that, like I said. Now, so that you understand the perspective of people who deny that Romans 7 describes Paul's life as a Christian, here here is the gist of their best arguments. They point out that in verses 7 through 13... Paul makes it clear that he is giving a personal testimony about how he came to see his sin in the light of the law. And notice all the verbs in, uh, up to verse 14 are in the past tense. Verse 9, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. And therefore, they say, he's given a testimony about what his life was like before his conversion. There's one more, even novel view, more novel view. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, I think, says that this passage is describing Paul's experience as he goes through the process of regeneration and conviction. And, And so they say, he's giving a testimony about how he came to see his sin in light of the law. One commentary I read even suggested that if... Verses 14 through 25 describe the state of a redeemed person, then how can you call it redemption at all? Because he ends by saying, he's a wretched man. And you can see the strength of that argument, right? I mean, most who take that view will point out that the language of Romans 7 contrasts starkly, sharply, with the, with the language of Romans 8, not to mention the verses I already quoted from Romans 6. And in fact, most of them would argue that if Paul is describing the Christian life in Romans 7, then he's contradicting himself because... In verse 14 of chapter 7, he says, I am sold under sin, as if he's describing a state of bondage, total slavery to sin. But in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 6, the passage we just read, he says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. So how can both passages portray what it means to be a Christian when it seems they almost contradict? Now again, I am convinced that Paul is describing his experience as a Christian in Romans 7. And you'll find that the best commentaries on the book of Romans agree with me. They they take the same position the Reformers all took. The experience Paul describes here is the common experience of all Christians. 
And it explains why we cannot do the things we want to do. And if it's not your experience, if you think this is not your experience, then you may need to do a little more self-examination. Now, bear in mind, Paul wrote this passage as a mature apostle. He's describing his experience as a Christian and as an apostle. By the time you get to verse 14, what you need to notice about that verb tense issue is he has switched back to present tense verbs. Everything in the context suggests that he is describing a present tense struggle. And that's an important fact to realize. If it were possible to attain a a state of perpetual spiritual victory where you no longer have to struggle with sin, then surely Paul, of all people, would already have attained that higher level. And he would have told us about how to achieve it. He wouldn't have stopped this discussion by calling himself a wretched man. He would have explained to us how he got out of that condition, if indeed he got out of it. But instead, when he comes to the point of describing his current struggle with sin, he's describing it deliberately as a frustrating and never-ending warfare. The truth is, there is no spiritual experience that will ever catapult us to such a high spiritual uh, plane that, that we'll never be tempted again. We won't get past being tempted in this life. We won't get past the struggle against sin in this life. And if you give up the struggle in desperation or whatever, then sin will defeat you. So let me give you two bits of advice that arise out of this chapter. First, if you think you have attained a degree of perfection where you're living above sin, then you probably have a deficient view of sin or a lack of appreciation for your own fallenness and your fleshly infirmities, or you have a too high opinion of yourself or all of the above. And if you think this doesn't describe your condition, you need to be broken and humbled. If you are a true believer with that kind of lax attitude towards sin and such a low view of perfection that you think you've already attained it, I'm warning you, God will humble you. Let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall, 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Second, if you are looking for a powerful experience that will launch you into a state of perfection, perfect sanctification, where you'll no longer be tempted by your favorite sins, then you're looking for something Scripture doesn't promise, and you will fail in the pursuit, and you will probably be discouraged. The Christian life is a constant battle against sin. And each battle must be fought with diligence and persistence, and victory almost never comes easily. And in fact, those who are looking for a life of ease are going to fail in the struggle against sin. Here's why you cannot live your life on a plane that keeps you perpetually free from sin and temptation, no matter how much willpower or determination you think you have. Paul tells us here, Why it's not possible. Look at the passage. This is how Paul describes his own struggle with sin. And as I read, listen carefully and ask yourself, as we read through this, doesn't this perfectly describe your own experience in in your present struggle against sin? Nothing Paul describes here, nothing he describes here, is foreign to the Christian experience that all of us share. I wish it weren't so. Paul wished it weren't so. But he described his own struggle with stark honesty. And these are words every true and honest Christian could use to describe the daily struggle we all face against sin. And I'm going to read verses 14 through 25. And so as I read, ask yourself, is this not a perfect description of your daily battle with sin? Verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law, that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want... It is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So I find it to be a law 
that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself with the law I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Now, there are several reasons why I think the context makes it perfectly clear that Paul is writing as a Christian, describing the struggle he faced on a daily basis as a mature apostle fighting against the sin in his heart and mind. Again, notice that throughout the section I just read, he uses present tense verbs. It's true that in the section leading up to this passage, he was giving his testimony, and he used past tense verbs because he was describing how he came to grips with the fact that the law could not save him. The law exposed his sin. The law even provoked him to more sin, and it made sin appear exceedingly sinful. But the law itself doesn't offer any remedy for sin. The remedy for sin, Paul found in Christ. Through Christ, he found forgiveness and freedom from sin's condemnation, but not a full and immediate victory over the fact of sin, and certainly not an easy victory over the power of sin in his life. And therefore, beginning in verse 14, he switches to the present tense, and everything here indicates that he is giving us a testimony of his daily experience. This is what he was going through at the stage of life when he was writing these words. In other words, he didn't speak of his struggle as something already in the past. He described it as a present reality. This is something he grappled with until the day he died. And here's another reason I'm convinced he was speaking of his Christian experience. He says in verse 22, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. And in verse 25 he says, I serve the law of God with my mind. He could not have said that as an unredeemed man. Even Saul of Tarsus, whose whole life consisted of a slavish devotion to the ceremonies and the outward elements of the rabbinical traditions... He couldn't honestly have said that he delighted in the law of God in his inward man because like most of the Pharisees, Saul of Tarsus had elevated the Pharisaical tradition above the authority of God's word and thereby effectively rendered scripture null and void, which is what Jesus told the Pharisees, Matthew 15, 6, for the sake of human tradition, they make void the word of God. Saul of Tarsus was following a system of ceremonies and requirements that made an outward show of righteousness, but it actually reflected a degree of contempt for the moral meaning of the law. In other words, Saul of Tarsus was a hypocrite, a whitewashed sepulcher, whose obedience to the law was primarily an external matter done for show to receive the respect and honor of men, not really to please God. He could not honestly have said, I delight in the law of God in my inward man. But here he says that very thing. He had come to see the true meaning of the law, and his heart embraced the moral teachings of the law. He agreed with the law that it is good, verse 16. He loved God's law in the true sense David spoke about in the Psalms. That can only be true of a redeemed person. And Paul himself says so in Romans 8, verse 7, just a chapter after this. The mind that is set on the flesh, he's talking there about every unredeemed human mind. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. But now, Paul has a mind that is subject to the law of God. The problem is in his will and his flesh and his behavior. And as he describes his struggle with sin, he tells us why all Christians, all of us, still find it difficult to do what we want to do. And he gives us three reasons why we so often do the very things we hate. And I'll give them to you as we go through the passage. Are they already in your notes? Okay, so you don't have the outline, so I'll give it to you. I'll make it easy for you to take them down. Here's why you find the struggle with sin so difficult. Three reasons. Number one, your desires are conflicted. 
your desires are conflicted. There is a conflict within each Christian, and this conflict will continue until we're finally glorified. It's part of the curse of sin, and it's a curse to which all creation has been subjected. Just a chapter after this in Romans 8, and remember, this is the context of, that he's setting up for what he wants to say in Romans 7, in or Romans 8, rather. Romans 8, verse 20, Paul says that the, all of the creation was subjected to futility. In other words, creation itself is cursed with vanity and frustration. In, in chapter 8, verse 21, he refers to our predicament under the curse as the bondage of corruption. And we won't be fully released from that state of corruption until our bodies are finally redeemed and we are fully glorified. And, and therefore, he says, for the time being, all creation groans. And in chapter 8, verse 23, he says that even believers, and here he's specifically talking about believers, we ourselves, Romans 8, 23, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And for now, while we live on this sin-cursed earth, there is a remnant of sinful corruption, a, a principle of sin that still indwells us, so that our redemption, though it's certain, it's settled, it's yet future to be complete. It's not fully complete yet. Now, there's a difference of opinion among theologians and Bible teachers about what this means. Some claim it means each believer has two natures. And we know that Christ has two natures. He is both fully human and fully divine. And, and some would say there's a kind of parallel with Christians in their unglorified state. They say we also have two natures. One is a sin nature, the other is a pure, sinless, new nature. And they see the Christian as a kind of spiritual schizophrenic, you know, whose old nature fights against his new nature, and they believe that's what Paul's describing here. That's the view that's taught in the notes of the Schofield Reference Bible. That's also how the great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon interpreted this passage. He believed that all Christians have two fully active natures, one good, one evil, the old man and the new man. And I don't often disagree with Spurgeon. But I think he was wrong on this point. Scripture doesn't speak of two natures in the Christian. When the Apostle Paul speaks of the old man and the new man, nowhere does he suggest that, you know, at redemption we have a new person added to our old person. He says we are new men and women. We are new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 again, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And look at Romans 6, verse 6 again. We saw that in the last hour. I've already read it twice in this hour. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So the old nature is crucified, nailed to the cross. Its doom is sealed so that we could no longer, we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So scripture doesn't use the sort of language that suggests now you have a new creature inhabiting you. It says you are a new creature. If you are redeemed, you are a new person with godly desires, new desires that you never had before, and a whole new godly nature that replaces the old dead nature. The old nature is as good as dead, nailed to the cross, its dominance is broken, its utter destruction is guaranteed, and that is no longer your true nature. In no way does sin define who you really are anymore. That's not at all what Paul is saying here. In fact, what he means in Romans 7.17 when he says, so now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me, he is not there shirking responsibility for his sin. You know, it's not me doing it, it's the sin that dwells. That's not the point. He's not shirking responsibility, and he's not saying that the sin doesn't matter. You know, as if, well, it's not really me doing that, so it doesn't matter. He simply means that when he sins, that is not a reflection of the real Paul. That's not his true nature. Sin no longer defines who he is. Sin now is an interloper. It's a trespasser in his life. The real Paul is reflected in that heart that loves and agrees with the law of God. The real Paul 
is the is 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 the one whose mind is taken up with the law of God. The old man is crucified that the body of sin might be destroyed. And yet it does often seem like our old sinful self even even in its death throes is trying to get down from that cross and regain mastery over our lives. You know, our our we have sinful habits our old desires, those old patterns and ways of thinking, all of those things still fight to regain power over us. And Paul treats it as a personification of sin. This is sin trying to gain control over me again. And it does sometimes feel like we have a split personality, you know, a schizophrenic psyche vying for control of our hearts. It does sometimes feel like we're still in utter bondage to sin and helpless against the power of sin. But the Apostle Paul explicitly commands us not to think that way. That's his whole point. That's how it feels you know, like I'm a wretched man. But he's saying, don't think that way. He says we are to consider ourselves dead indeed to sin and alive unto God in Christ Jesus. Romans 6.11, we saw in the previous hour. We're not to let sin reign in our mortal bodies to make us obey its passions. We're not supposed to yield our members as our members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present ourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and our members to God as instruments for righteousness. And then he promises in Romans 6.14, sin will not have dominion over you. You're not going to lose this battle. So what is it that makes us seem so susceptible to sin then? Here in Romans 7, Paul says that there is... It's not, our, an old, it's not our old nature, it's not a, like a split personality within us, but there is a principle of sin that is still at work in us. Again, he personifies sin itself, and as if sin is alive and conscious and trying to gain dominion over us again. A remnant of our sinfulness still remains in us. It's as if the rotting corpse of our old man were strapped to our backs, spreading its corruption and decay and hindering us from enjoying the life of the new creation, that old corpse constantly spoiling the freshness of the new life with the decay and the stench of the old life. And here's how Paul describes our task as believers in Ephesians 4, verses 22 through 24. He says, this is your job, to put off the old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put, to, put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. The new man, the real you that has been redeemed and remade in the image of Christ is a spiritual person. That old man, the, the crucified, doomed, corrupt being that you used to be is just a fleshly corpse. And we need to be putting off the old and putting on the new. And scripture often makes this contrast between that which is fleshly and that which is spiritual. We saw it, you know, in the earlier hour. You see it, you'll see it very clearly if you study Galatians 5. In fact, I think I read from Galatians 5 already, verses 17 through 25. In fact, Galatians 5, 17, that one verse alone, is an exact parallel to what Paul is saying here in Romans 7. Here's another reason we know for a fact that Romans 7 is an adequate, is, a, is a, a, an appropriate description of the life of a Christian, because this is precisely what Paul told the Galatian believers their spiritual warfare would be like. Galatians 5.17, For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. That's the very message of Romans 7. We cannot do the things we would like to do. Why? Because there's that principle of sin that's like an old, dead, rotting corpse that we need to be putting off. And it's not an easy thing to do, and you can't do it in one easy, simple, fell swoop. And Paul goes on in Galatians 5, then, to contrast the works of the flesh with the fruit of the Spirit. And so there is this dichotomy between flesh and spirit, and it's a theme that runs through all of the New Testament. Now, instantly, some will be tempted to think of this as a dualism, you know, between spirit and matter. 
as if the, everything physical is, and tangible is evil and that which is spiritual and intangible is good. That is what the Gnostic heretics taught, that you know, matter is evil and spirit is good, but that's not what Paul is teaching. This is not a contrast between matter and spirit. When he speaks of the flesh, he has in mind something far more comprehensive than just the physical body. I said this in an earlier hour, and I don't remember if it was in my breakout session or the, the main thing, but it's worth saying again, the flesh is not a reference to the physical body. And in fact, in Galatians 5, when he lists the works of the flesh, he includes things like hatred, wrath, envy, covetousness. These are sins that take place in the mind, not the body. They're immaterial and invisible things, but they're not spiritual in the sense Paul speaks of that which is spiritual. And so the flesh, if you want a shorthand definition of it, the flesh is everything about you that pertains to your fallen humanity, everything that's under the curse, including evil lusts, wicked thoughts, imaginations, sinful desires. Those are all things that pertain to the flesh. And the flesh, therefore, must be something more than just the tangible physical body. It includes your mind. And therefore, the, the spiritual new creation... By the way, uh, that which is matter can't be evil because eventually we're going to have a body that is tangible and corporeal and visible just like Christ's resurrection body, only perfectly glorified. So what Scripture refers to as the flesh can't just mean the material body because even our material bodies will one day be fully purged of all that's evil. So there's nothing inherently evil about physical human flesh. Don't ever think that evil is everything tangible and material or that good is everything intangible and immaterial because that's what the Gnostics taught, but it's a serious error, and Scripture says it's basically heresy. So the expression, the flesh, when Paul uses it, and he uses it a lot, it's basically his shorthand to represent everything fallen humanity became when Adam sinned. Now, corruptible, perverted, evil, sin-stained, and subject to decay and defilement, and that includes our minds as well as our bodies. So rather than thinking of the flesh as your physical body, you ought to think of it as a principle. It's a law that works in you like a spiritual law of gravity, something that pulls you down, something that keeps making you fall, something that holds you to this world when you wish you could soar into heaven. Very much like the law of gravity. It's a principle like that. And that's exactly how Paul describes it here in Romans 7. Look at verse 21. So I find it to be a law or a principle, that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. And in verse 23, he describes it as another law in my members, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. God's law, he says in verse 14, is spiritual. In other words, to borrow the parallelism from verse 12, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and just and good. And that is exactly what he means when he says the law is spiritual. It's holy and just and good. Again, he's not setting up any kind of dualism between spirit and matter. It seems like that at times, but you have to read Paul very carefully. And it's clear that that's not what he's doing. When he says the law is spiritual, he means it's holy and just and good. But I am carnal meaning living under the curse, sold under sin, I was born into sin, and although I'm redeemed from the penalty and the absolute power of sin, I still retain remnants of my fallenness. My body is not yet redeemed and glorified. All my sinful habits are not yet broken, and sin still fights for my affections. It still appeals to my desires, and that's what Paul means when he speaks of the flesh. But notice, he's not suggesting that life for a Christian is the same as life for an unbeliever. He's describing here an ongoing conflict, a struggle. This is the most important thing about this passage. This is a struggle, what he describes here, that does not take place in the mind and the heart of the unbeliever. Paul says, verse 15, he hates sin. 
In his heart of hearts, he loves God's law. He wants to obey it. Obey it. And, and this is a warfare that he constantly has to wage. There's no suggestion here that he's prepared to give up the struggle. He's frustrated with it, but he's not about to give it up. If someone reads this passage and imagines that it means, well, we may as well give up the struggle because we're never going to be sinless anyway, then you don't get the message. If someone thinks Paul is saying it's okay to surrender to sin and accept a life of defeat or tolerate a measure of sin in our lives, because after all, we're not glorified yet. If you think that's what Paul's saying, then you're missing his point completely. Paul is not saying that he was constantly defeated. And he's not teaching that the struggle against sin is hopeless. He's merely acknowledging that the struggle against sin is not over yet. He hadn't attained a plateau where he was free from temptation. He hadn't reached a state of perfection where he could claim to be sin-free. But he was not about to give up the fight. He talks about this same thing, by the way, when he gives his testimony in Philippians 3. Philippians 3.12, he writes, It is not that I have already obtained this, Christ-likeness, or not that I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's the heart of a true Christian. If you think the reality of sin is, means you can, you know, the fact that sin indwells you means that you can accept sin in your life. If you've given up the warfare against your old desires and habits, then you need to examine yourself to see whether you're really in the faith. Because the defining mark of the true Christian is what Paul says in Romans 7.22. I delight in the law of God in my inner being. The true Christian may struggle with sin, but he hates his sin and he continues the warfare against it, no matter how discouraging or disheartening the warfare might become. Sin may trip him up. It may knock him down. It will never give up seeking mastery over him in this life. But he knows that sin is a defeated enemy. He hates it, and he's not going to surrender to the dominion of sin. And that's precisely what he means in Romans 6.14, as we said in the earlier hour, when he says, sin won't have dominion over you. Sin is not going to win this battle. And that brings us to a second lesson we glean from this chapter. Here's a second reason you find it difficult to overcome sin. Number two, your will is dysfunctional. Your will is dysfunctional. No Christian ever ought to put an ounce of confidence in human willpower. Scripture makes it abundantly clear in the first place that our salvation from sin is not a matter of human willpower or human free will. According to John 1.13, those who receive Christ and are born again were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. There is no power in the human will. Even the redeemed will is crippled by the taint of indwelling sin. And Paul is describing that very situation in verse 18 when he writes, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to carry out, uh, to, to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. He's saying that he has absolutely no ability by the sheer force of his own will to make himself do right. There's a conflict in his will. As a believer, he loves the law of God, he wishes to obey it, but he can't obey it consistently because his flesh is driven by contrary desires, selfish cravings, ungodly lusts, For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to one another to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. That's Galatians 5.17 again. Now think about this. One thing that almost all false religions have in common is that they try to glorify the human will. Most religions virtually make the human will an object of worship. The only power they really put their trust in is sheer willpower. 
And that's why man-made religions are so prone to things like asceticism and self-discipline and self-improvement and legalistic rules. And in fact, in Colossians 2, the Apostle Paul describes that form of worship as will worship. Colossians 2, verse 20 through 23, he says, Such people submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. He says, These indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Now, if you're reading from any modern translation, most of them translate that expression in verse 23 as self-imposed religion. That's how they translate the the phrase, and that's certainly part of the idea that Paul means to convey. They've made up their own religion and imposed it on themselves. But the Greek term he uses here is ethelothreskeia, and it's a long word, single word, that literally means will-worship. And that's how you find it in the King James Version. Asceticism has a show of wisdom in will worship. The expression speaks of religion that magnifies the human will rather than God's will, first by substituting self-imposed rules for God's commandments, but also by teaching people that righteousness is the result of human willpower, and nothing could be further from the truth. Now, unfortunately, even among some Christians, there is a tendency to give way too much credit to the human will and to place too much emphasis on human willpower when it comes to the battle that we wage against sin. Arminian theology has at its heart a motive to magnify the importance of the human will. And as a result, Arminianism exaggerates the value of willpower. This is one of my chief complaints against the theology of Charles Finney and those who have followed in his steps. And in fact, there's a, there's a website, I think it's still on the web, uh, that perfectly epitomizes this error. And the address, if you want to see it for yourself, is www.stopsinning.net. That's the, that's the webpage. And if it's not still there, you'll find it at the Internet Archive. Stop Sinning. That's the message of the website, perfectly summed up in the domain name. Stop sinning. If you want to be holy, according to this fellow who maintains this website, all you have to do is stop sinning. He claims that's perfectly obvious. It's like that Bob Newhart clip, you know? Let me quote you a section from this webpage. He says, quote, No limit can be put on the degree of perfection attainable in this life. Clearly, the only limitation as to how holy you can be is that which you impose by your own free will. It has pleased God to give us free will and also to provide for us a way of escape in every temptation, but it doesn't please him when you misuse your freedom. And so this guy's answer to the problem of sin for the Christian is sheer willpower. Just stop sinning. That's precisely what that man's spiritual mentor, Charles Spurgeon, sorry, Charles Finney, (laughs) that's what he taught. Spurgeon opposed that with every fiber of his being. And it's why Spurgeon refused to, to give any kind of endorsement to Finney. They were not exact contemporaries, but they over their lives overlapped. It's not what the Apostle Paul taught. Paul testified that even late in his Christian experience, long after he had distinguished himself as one of the chief apostles, his will was dysfunctional, just like yours and mine. He couldn't do what he wished. Even when the will to do good was present with him, the power to perform that which is good was elusive. The principle of sin was still at work in him, and his own free will, with all the willpower he could muster, wasn't potent enough to overcome it. That's my experience, too. And it's yours as well. And that brings us to a third lesson we can glean from this passage. We've already referred to it, but here's a third reason you can't be completely rid of sin in this life, and you can't do what you resolve to do. Lesson, reason number three, your flesh is corrupted. Your flesh is corrupted. Paul writes in verse 18, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. I find it to be a law that 
when I want to do right, verse 21, evil lies close at hand. How close at hand? Well, in verse 23, he describes it as a law in my members. He's describing this principle of sin as a reality that clings to him and indwells him so that he is never free of it as long as he inhabits this unglorified body of flesh. Earlier, you may have noticed, I compared it to being strapped to a rotting corpse. And that, I think, is exactly the imagery Paul means to convey here. In some ancient cultures, a murderer would be punished. One of the cruelest punishments you could give would be to have the body of the murder victim strapped, lashed permanently to the body of the killer. And it was a slow and agonizing death sentence. As the corpse would decay and putrefy, its corruption would infect the body of the murderer as well ultimately causing him to die. That's the very picture Paul paints of the flesh. It is decayed and rotting, and its corruption is a constant threat, and that's why the only answer and and the only way for a Christian to grow in sanctification is to put off the old man and put on the new man. And that's exactly what Paul had in mind when he wrote those famous words of verse 24, "'Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death?' This corpse that's strapped to me. Now, again, a lot of Christians recoil at this language. How can a believer and a redeemed man see himself as wretched? How can someone who is set free from sin's absolute dominion, loosed from the ultimate condemnation of sin, how can a new creature in Christ regard himself as wretched? You know, I've I've grown accustomed, actually, to hearing questions like that every time I quote Jeremiah 17.9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. People always come up after I've quoted that verse and ask, how can that apply to a Christian? We don't still have deceitful hearts that are desperately wicked, do we? After all, God has removed the stony heart and given us tender hearts of flesh with new desires and a new love for righteousness. So are we still subject to the deceitfulness of sin? And the answer is emphatically yes. There is a sense in which we are still burdened with the wretchedness of our own sin, and although we are fully justified and Christ's perfect righteousness has been imputed to us, we are far from perfectly righteous in the practical sense. And that's what Paul's describing here. It's the same thing Job spoke of, perhaps the most righteous man who ever lived on earth, and yet at the end of his ordeal, when he saw God face-to-face and understood better his own fallenness, Scripture says in Job 40, verse 3 and 4, Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am vile. This is a man, Scripture expressly says, is the most righteous man. And he says, I'm vile. And then he says in Job 42, 6, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. If he can say that, why can't Paul call himself wretched? And David, a man after God's own heart, testifies in Psalm 51, 5, that he was brought forth in iniquity and conceived in sin. Isaiah, the great prophet, said, Woe is me, I am lost, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people who have unclean lips. And here, even the Apostle Paul describes himself as a wretched man. Here's what Arthur Pink said about this. Quote, this moan, O wretched man that I am, expresses the normal experience of the Christian. And any Christian who does not moan like that is an abnormal and in an unhealthy spiritual state. The man who does not utter this cry daily is either so out of communion with Christ or so ignorant of the teaching of Scripture or so deceived about his actual condition that he knows nothing about the corruptions of his own heart and the abject failure in his own life. And Pink goes on, the one who bows to the solemn and searching teaching of God's word, the one who there learns the awful wreckage which sin has wrought in the human constitution, the one who sees the exalted standard of holiness which God has set before us, cannot fail to discover what a vile wretch he is. If he's given to behold how far short he falls of attaining God's standard, if in the light of the divine sanctuary he discovers how little he resembles the Christ of God, then he'll find this language most suited to express his godly sorrow. I agree with Pink. We groan, all of creation groans, and that's the groan. 
Oh, wretched man that I am. Is there a remedy for it? Well, there is. And it drives us back to the realization that the only remedy for any sin is Christ. And Paul recognizes that. And that's why immediately after calling himself a wretch, he writes, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then he goes on to describe in Romans 8 how through justification Christ has already freed us from the condemnation of sin and how through glorification he will ultimately deliver us from every hint of sin. And until that day, we groan along with the rest of creation. But thank God it is not a hopeless groaning. It sounds bad, you know, wretched man that I am, and it definitely means what it says, but it's not hopeless. The process of sanctification takes place daily in spite of our failures as we confess our sin, as we learn to hate and forsake it, and as God, by his grace, keeps conforming us to the image of his own dear son. That's the goal to which we keep pressing. That's the prize of our high calling. That's what every genuine Christian pursues every day. And it's the promise that keeps us from giving up in discouragement while we wage war against the flesh and its corruption. So if you're frustrated with this struggle with sin in your life, don't despair and don't give up the fight. But learn to depend on God's grace and his power rather than your own willpower and self-determination. Because willpower and self-determination are, at the end of the day, fleshly and therefore sinful. But we who believe in Christ are his true people who worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. This is Paul's statement of that. He has no confidence in his own flesh. And it's right for us to echo that confession. Let's pray. Father, certainly we have no reason for confidence in our own flesh. And yet we're so prone to pride and self-sufficiency and even think too highly of our own willpower. The minute we begin to see spiritual progress. We imagine that the power to walk on water is a skill we've learned for ourselves, but save us from that. Keep us dependent on your grace, and may we see a real and lasting progress in the working of our sanctification. May we press towards the goal for the prize of that high calling until we reach glory, so that Christ may be glorified in us, we pray in his name. Amen.